ultimately, I think there are enough resources to help people have a high quality of life at the end of life. If we align the system, if we align patients and providers and payers in the right way, we can improve quality very quickly for people with serious illness. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Childhood fraught with illness, loss, and uncertainty drove Tori Fields to an adulthood focused on making these experiences better for herself and others. A believer that we are all here for a reason. Her reason is to help people have more dignified, less painful experiences at the end of their lives. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz. And I'm Lisa Sunin, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, Lisa. Yes, David. You have been um, you've been very busy on the writing front lately, writing some, also on the podcasting front. And we should include a link to a great interview you did with uh, the folks at Wharton. Thank but you. But in addition, um, you've been doing. You wrote a very well received series, uh, two pairs of a pair of articles, I guess that would be two. Uh, <laughs> one, uh, basically, things you should ask VCs and things that um, you uh, you should ask uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, uh, do you want to tell the good people about that in case they didn't have a, to encourage them to actually go and read it, which are totally worth it? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I wrote an article about the three things that venture capitalists should always think about when investing in digital health companies in particular, but all, all companies, but, all, but especially digital health companies, um, you know, or ask themselves, if not ask the entrepreneur, you know, are, is the entrepreneur charismatic or actually a great leader? Is the company a product or a company? Um and there was a third one, and now I'm escaping me at the moment. But in any event, um, you're ready to be energy secretary. <laughs> yeah, really. I uh, <laughs> yeah, really. Um, and it, what was really fun about it was it prompted uh, somebody who was a reader to say, "You should really write the opposite article, which is what the VCs should be asked by the entrepreneurs." So I did that second, and um, it's been a lot of fun to get the feedback from that. People have really appreciated. It, I think I'm always amazed how much people prefer those sort of how to, you know, tip articles over um, deep thoughts. Yeah, well, but I, I, I actually think that in your inimitable way, Lisa, they are pretty deep. I think that you sort of kind of kind of say what many people may be thinking, but don't quite articulate as uh, boldly. I have been accused of that before. Uh, <laughs> anyways. Speaking um, of boldness. <laughs> speaking of bold, we have a wonderful guest here today in person, in studio, Tori Fields, who learned early in life that you could take nothing for granted and that you really need to show up when things are going in the right direction. She has parlayed these guiding principles into an accelerated and notable career, culminating in the founding of Votive Health, which she views as the company in the business of making better memories. Hi, Tori. It is so great to have you here. Live and in person, by the way. Thank you for having me. Uh, You and I met not that long ago, and I was just totally bowled over by your passion and your energy. Where do you get that from? What inspires you to be so out there? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think that I uh, I live every day to the fullest. Um, I think part of that actually, it's interesting that I'm coming in today because today is my um, it's my five years 
being cancer-free. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Wow, so this is a big uh, cancerversary for me. And um, what's interesting about that is I think that my experience in life with serious illness myself, um, having serious illness as a kid and then having cancer twice, um, and I'm still a young person, it reminds me that I can't really take anything for granted. And so it allows me to be really energetic, only seek the things that I'm passionate about, and really hyper-focus on those things that I'm passionate about. And, you know, that's really what drives me every day. Well, it's interesting because I think so many people who, I mean, you started on a kind of a rough path in life, um, both illness-wise and family-wise and financial uncertainty and lots of things that, you know, many people would have been so daunted by. And yet you... um, have really overcome that and been incredibly successful. And you are a young person for all the success you've had. Um, early in your career, uh, or I'm sorry, early in your life, you saw firsthand, I know, the intersection of illness, insurance, and employment when you were telling me about your mom. Tell us about how that has shaped you and your work. Uh, my mom was a, is a really dynamic person, and she had so much grit and resilience And I watched her be, um, in a lot of ways, a disenfranchised, disempowered caregiver to a young child and to a lot of kids who were going through uncertainty, as you were saying. You're one of 12, right? Yeah, I'm one of 12. I'm the youngest of 12. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So um, I I like to say that I had... um, I had very few siblings, but a lot of parents. (laughs) (laughs) Being the youngest, you just have a lot of older uh, people around all the time. But um, what was interesting to me, I was really interested in my relationship with my mother. And I think that I was – I spent most of my childhood trying to just make it easier for her. And so when you are put in a situation several times – me being in the hospital several times as a kid, um, and you're watching this person that you just want their life to be easier um, struggle with the system, that that put a fire under me, I think. I started to – what I started to notice over time was that we were the rule and not the exception in the healthcare system. And so my mom was just an example of all of these other disempowered uh, caregivers – not really knowing how to navigate the system and not really having anybody advocate on their behalf. And I was that kid that they were talking about. And I heard a lot of these conversations, but I was so young that I wasn't part of the conversation. And so now that I've gotten older, I've started to realize how to, how I would have wanted to be an advocate for my mother, but also how I can think about better advocating for other people and perhaps just bypassing it all by changing the system. So you, um, you know, had a pretty, you know, you, you went through school, you did that. And, in, and early in your career, you focused on emergency preparedness and epidemiology, and especially systems design, which I think of something that's like the great organizing principles, right? Was that, uh, maybe that comes out of your desire for control and structure. <laughs> oh, possibly. Not to psychoanalyze you. But um, tell, how did you kind of get there? I mean, you 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 know, you could have gone seriously sideways, right, with all the challenges you experienced as a kid. Um, but you kind of launched into this interesting area. How'd that come about? <laughs> How did emergency preparedness yeah. and, and epidemiology come about? Um, so, wow, I feel like this is going to be a conversation about my mother. So, uh, 
aren't they all? <laughs> uh, probably. Not, not to psychoanalyze me there. Um, but uh, my mom told all of us kids, she was a single mom, and um, I'm the first person in my family to finish college. Um, she told all of us that education was the ticket out. And um, that gave all of us just sort of this forward momentum, I think. Um, but she had also told us that we create our own destiny. So there is some power and control in that. Um, I, What I was always really fascinated by um, was research and how we can better understand how people and ideas and disease and all of these other things really flow amongst one another. Um, and that led me to epidemiology. I, uh, but before that, I, I was really very interested in more like virology or being a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up just not going to medical school due to illness. And um, I didn't know what public health was before I even applied to medical school. Uh, I thought really that you're, you're just a doctor or you're a nurse or you're in the classic medical system if you want to change healthcare. And so um, when I got the cho- choice taken from me to go to medical school, like, okay, you're not doing that anymore, I found public health, which sort of gave, g- gave me much better background to think about systems, how you write policy, and then also how you write policies and procedures to make a better operating system. Um, And I have always really looked at those things from an evidence-based perspective. So you have to understand the history of the system or how disease flows today in order to really make it better in the future. Is there an example of good system design in healthcare that you can point to, or is it all bad? (laughs) I don't think it's all bad. I think um, I'll give a a couple of examples. I love the oncology medical home. Um, I love the uh, sort of clinical pathway design and development space for oncology. Um, CMMI came out with the oncology care model, uh, and I think it's actually one of the most successful uh, clinical designs that CMMI has put out there. And and the reason for that is that they really got it right in terms of what do patients and families need during the cancer experience. They need an interdisciplinary team. They need a good um, advanced care planning, uh, which I'm very passionate about. They need good best evidence. Um, and they need patients and families to have a seat at the table to sort of provide their input. How are the they way. able to evolve that in such an effective way? I mean, it seems what they've delivered from what you're saying is is something that's successful, but that also so many want to deliver. And from what we're all hearing, you know, that, that type of success has been really elusive to kind of get all the combination right. Did they think about it more holistically than others, or is it the urgency of the condition that helps focus the mind? What what is? Um, I you know that's a really great question, and I think what they did first was um, they chose a model that was already in private industry. Um, that was the oncology medical home. It had been tested in other places, so it wasn't something that was federal. So say what you mean by that, because um, everyone may have think they understand, including sure. me, and not quite. 
be thinking about it in the way you are. When you say the onco- you know, the, the medical, the oncology centered medical home, or what are you, what are you, what are you referring to? So the oncology um, medical home model, which was the term in private industry and oncology care model under CMMI, that what they did was really focus on in development of an interdisciplinary team. Uh, that would support a person through their cancer trajectory, their cancer treatment, and sort of end of life if uh, if the cancer was aggressive and unable to be cured. Um, they made sure that what they did was align incentives. So the payment model was a value-based payment, which allows you to have more creativity if you have a whole team or a panel at the table. Um, And it allows for the patient to really go along a a disease journey without having to intersect with things like a prior authorization for different types of payment. It's just one big bundled payment. Um, And so I think there's a beauty in allowing clinical teams some art to their science, which is how do you uh, create a, a supportive environment for a patient, but then also uh, making sure that you're aligning the payment so that it covers that team, but also that that team can reap in the rewards with things like shared savings or incentive payments. Um, and so that, I think, that's really the crux of the oncology care model and has been relatively successful for um, oncology practices. Who are who are interested in changing? To your, I think you said one other thing though, um, which is, uh, I mean, really the oncology care model um, allow it allows you to sort of uh, what they did was actually create take a model that was co-designed with patients and families. So they they thought about this from there's a severity of this disease, but also the disease. The treatment of that disease is very expensive, and so I think it sharpens the mind both from the experience that people are having with cancer and from how how high the cost is. So you went briefly and did time at McKinsey, I know, but you found your way pretty quickly to Cambia Health Solutions, which is, for those who don't know, the parent of Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield and also and other insurance companies and other entrepreneurial companies as well. But you said you got there by signing up for an actuarial program. (laughs) What in the heck were you thinking? Oh, so the thing that I really love is evidence-based practice and system design based on evidence. So before I was at um, Cambia, I was really largely more in the evaluation of health departments. Um, And what I found was when you're writing a grant for your own job – it can skew results of your job really quickly, especially if you're the evaluator. And I had a tendency in um, the public sector to evaluate programs out of existence, um, which didn't make me very likable a lot of the time (laughs) trying to get a job. (laughs) Uh, But what I found was that um, there were organizations who valued this skill, and those organizations were health insurance companies. <laughs> and um, the departments and health insurance companies where these evaluators lived and evaluated programs was actuarial. Interesting. And um, one thing that I went so into, yeah, one thing I went into Cambia uh, finding out about was that I just really I have a lot of qualitative skills. And I have a lot of an understanding of system design and redesign. But what I didn't understand was 
financial analysis. And so that for me was this little piece of the puzzle that I was missing in my understanding of being able to um, redesign a better system. So I signed up to be an actuary. And how did that go? It was great. I think that I still probably taking all the tests, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) I stopped taking the tests along the way um, because I went much more squarely into developing clinical programs and products. But um, I love statistics. I love. uh, I've always been very interested in quality and payment incentives, and so you have to figure out how things are priced in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that it gave me a really interesting perspective of the administration of healthcare and how people make decisions about what gets paid for and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. I always think about actuarial practices like the science of torturing numbers to get to the number you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, the experience that I had at Cambio was actually really different. Um, we had a very innovative, very collaborative relationship between the finance team and the clinical teams. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's very unusual. I think most people at Cambio would say that that was really what was exciting about mm-hmm. the work that we did in, in actuarial. Um, we were regular, so my team at least was regularly assigned a medical director for a month, where then we analyzed all of their data for the whole month. And we got a better understanding of what their initiatives were, what they wanted to get accomplished, what they had been reading in literature, and we ran numbers for them. Hmm. So it was, it was really cool. So I know, I came I know reasonably well. It's a very ethical, values-based organization and also very entrepreneurial. So you mentioned that you had uh, been encouraged, and maybe everybody's encouraged to take five hours of personal development time a week and explore something new. So that led to your ultimate career, really, it that did. opportunity. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, when, I was, when I was 14, I wrote in my journal that I wanted to create a, a serious illness medical home model. Okay. Um, I wrote probably that I liked Sean Cassidy, but okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> I still have those, pic- those posters somewhere. I don't remember what year it was, but it was something like that. <laughs> I was hyper-focused, really. Um, <laughs> I had, I had like, politicians on my wall. Um, but <laughs> you should I, see Lisa's look. It's, <laughs> um, but I'm going to take down my picture of the rock back there. <laughs> he's a politician, almost. Almost. Uh, yeah. But I said I, I was really interested in develop- understanding how do you help people with serious illness better? Um, so I've spent a lot of time looking at it from a lot of different angles. And when I was at Cambia, what we had was, an, was the data to really analyze this population um, in a way that most people don't have access to data to do. And so um, I had a fantastic manager who, yeah, created time for us if we had gotten all of our projects done that we could carve out development time. And I... Um, I started actually really looking at what is what is this population of people with serious illness? Um, where can we impact them? What are the clinic, clinical models that work? And um, the first year that I was working on this project, I uh, performed over 300 informational interviews with people from all over the this industry that I found out um, was known as palliative care. And I had never heard this term before, but there was there were a bunch of people 
doing this work, and it seemed to have really repeatable evidence base. Can you explain what it is for people who don't know? Palliative care is specialized medical care for people with serious illness. It is focused on improving the quality of life uh, for people starting at point of diagnosis and going all the way through to the end of life. Um, And what palliative care did for me as a person who was not dying of cancer, um, it really did three things for me. I'd say it helped me uh, with treatment decision support. So I didn't understand what my options were, and they helped me explain them. Um, I got advanced care planning, so made sure that all of my documents were in order should something go wrong. And then I had a, a management of my pain and symptoms. And that included things like making sure that my anxiety and depression and loneliness were managed, uh, making sure that I felt uh, like I had a support group, people who could do things for me. So not not just your pain, but also other other types of things. And that goes under the rubric of palliative care. I mean, it would I would think that those elements, as you present them, should be part of the care of, of everybody, and particularly people with serious illness, independent of the end-of-life considerations. You would think. I want that so badly. And I think that that's actually a big argument in the field of palliative medicine about whether or not this is a specialty or it's just good medicine. And um, I would, I would, what I have found in being in this field now for 12 years is that um, I think most palliative care physicians would say they wish the system worked like that. I mean, when you describe it as sort of really sort of like comprehensive support, that sounds like the kind of thing you'd want for every patient. Um, when I think about it in terms of palliative care, um, my intents go up. We were talking about it a little bit beforehand with Lisa because, um, uh, you know, I not the misinformed debate about, oh, death panels, not that. Um, but I think when people hear that insurance companies are really interested in palliative care, it's, you know, and they say, well, we're just trying to help the patients. It's hard to wonder, well, geez, isn't it just more economic for them to, like, how do they, how do they disentangle competing incentives of encouraging people to, quote, you know, uh, Take less care because it's less expense. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so first, insurance companies are full of people like me and others uh, who are very passionate about transforming the healthcare delivery system. And what you see um, in senior leadership in health insurance companies is that these are people who have become oftentimes disenfranchised by some other part of the system and want to figure out how to change it. Um, but this is a hard area to change, and mostly that has to do with we don't want to die. We don't want to talk about death, so it's very difficult conversation for any of us to have, and clinicians are not trained to have these conversations with their patients. So it's something where, um, you know, I, I think what you're exper- what you're seeing is that a lot of people just don't get good deaths. And uh, in 2011, there was a national opinion poll that was uh, completed that asked Americans where they wanted to receive their care when they were seriously ill or where they wanted to die. And 70% of the population said they wanted to receive care in the home, 
when I ran that analysis um, first at Cambia and then now for a number of health plans, what they're seeing is that 60% of their population is dying in the hospital. And that's a fundamental disconnect between what people want and what people are getting. And what people are getting is higher cost and lower quality and lower value care. And absolutely, you look on the surface and you say, of course, this looks like an economic argument. But you think about it and patients and families are being tortured at end of life. And they're not getting the care that they want. I mean, I've, I've read about that. Uh, obviously, I mean, not read about it. I mean, obviously, as a physician, I have seen that. There are horrible examples. I have, you know, Peter Bach has written about it unbelievably move, movingly, and we should include a, a link to that. But I, I'm also aware of examples. I mean, there are examples from my family where um, uh, well, my uncle had a uh, uh, pancreatic cancer and he was treated and it was actually at Sloan Kettering of all things and uh, he, at one point he had uh, um, some inf- a lung infection and the doctor was like washed the hands was sort of like oh good well you know it'll be uh, it's a good way to go and it was like what the fuck um, that's terrifying no it was terrifying and actually my aunt like but there was a kind of this big push where we had a plead to really actually get him the antibiotics. And then he lived another six, I wrote about this. Uh, it was like you know, for Time's op-ed. But you know, he had another six months of life. He went to all these family events. And just the idea that essentially, and it wasn't a palliative care person, it was right. a, essentially an embittered clinician who just had seen all this stuff and was like, you know, you're better off going this way more or less and just written him off. And I think, you know, but there's other things that you see with older people where people are like, well, they don't need to have cancer screening anymore. They don't need to have colonoscopy. I've had relatives who had to fight for those things mm-hmm. because people are like, well, once you're a certain age, you know, do everyone a favor and kind of like go gently into the dark night. And not everybody, like, you know, if for people who are super sick, I understand that. But for other people, like the idea, I, I worry a little bit about people, be, the assumption that everyone, you know, once you're at a certain age or at a certain point, it's just sort of, for the sake of society, you should throw in the towel. This is, I I think this is exactly what pushed me into developing votive, ultimately. Um, The, what I think is most important is making sure that patients or people with serious illness get um, the best evidence care possible that is right for them at the right time. And so ultimately, um, we have a lot of health insurance companies. We have a lot of physicians who really struggle to figure out what, how to have a conversation with a person and elicit their goals um, and then really match them to the services that are available to them. And I think that uh, ultimately what I found is that um, hospice and palliative medicine is largely underutilized, so people don't get the benefit of what you're, uh, they get more stories like yours and fewer stories like mine. Um, They often, these um, hospice, palliative care, these providers who are providing this type of support are not very uh, coordinated. It's very fragmented. They're hard to find, Mm -hmm. and they need to be found a little bit easier. Uh, And we need to align incentives so that people actually listen to people with serious illness rather than just think that uh, they can say these things like just going quietly into the night. Um, Because we need to make sure that we're giving true informed consent rather than just a clinician's informed consent. So you've 
built this program at Cambia, palliative care program at Cambia, and then you went on to Blue Shield, California, Mm -hmm. to build a program similarly for them. What is the challenge in making this go faster? Uh, I think the challenge in making this work go faster is that um, we need Inside of health plans, there's not a lot of subject matter expertise um, in looking at serious illness. And uh, we're all very much new to value-based payment and incentives and um, payment redesign. And so when you have to do both at the same time, it's hard. Um, I think that with serious illness, uh, it's a very small population, and so it can be Um, difficult to focus on inside of a large organization. Um, But then in addition to that, as I said, it's very difficult to find the clinicians and evaluate the clinicians who have this skill set. And so um, it means that we're right now from the sort of health plan palliative care stage, there are a lot of pilots going on. Mm -hmm. Lots, yeah. And it's also very difficult. What I have seen is that it's very difficult to evaluate the results of these programs. So you've left now Blue Shield to start your own company, Votive Health, which is a new approach to this um, this whole area. Um, how is that? How is that uh, experience of stepping out for the first time to be an entrepreneur after working really at big companies your whole career? What's that like? It is highly uncertain, mm-hmm. uh, very self-motivating, and a roller coaster mm-hmm. all the time. Sounds um, like life in general. Yeah, it, it <laughs> is like, like life in general. Um, I, I feel like that really the training wheels have come off. Mm-hmm. And um, I have been so fortunate to be incubated in large, very innovative organizations and have, like and have a wonderful time learning from great leaders. Um, and the, now it's, it's my turn to really show what I can do. You've said that the role of mentorship has been huge in getting you sort of along this road. It has. In what respect? Um, I have, what I've loved over the last year as I've been developing this design is that mentors have given me um, a lot of feedback, a lot of uh, thinking that I wouldn't have on my own. Um, they have been so gracious in giving me other people to talk to or ask questions of um, and even have really supported me in fundraising and business development. So um, I like to take a learning mindset to anything. And so I'm a first-time entrepreneur with a lot of people who are very supportive and, and thoughtful along the way. What do you most worry about and what are you most excited about as you launch this venture? Um, I think that I'm ultimately most worried about it just working out. Um, I don't have the padding of a big organization. Mm-hmm. So that's that's new to me. The uncertainty is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's what worries me. I, I actually worry, I worry about getting the results that I have gotten before. And I'm excited about getting the results that I've gotten before. Um, Because those results, what I have seen is improved quality of life for people and their families and access to care uh, in rural underserved areas and populations. And that's really what drives me. So something you said the other day really stuck with me, that there's an intimate tie between how you die and how people remember you. 
-hmm. And you said that really your company is about making better memories. It is. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Absolutely. I I spent 10 years running grief and bereavement groups uh, because I am somebody who uh, needed a grief and bereavement group. And I have have started to notice this intersection where um, when somebody has a traumatic death or a bad death, the people who are left behind talk about the death. They don't talk about the life. They don't talk about the person. And so um, what I really want to make sure of is that we have such a high quality of life at the end of life, both for people and their families, that you can continue to remember the life and the relationship that you had and that you built while you were alive. It's awesome. So this has been a fabulous conversation. We hope you're phenomenally successful Thank as you, you launch your much. company. I know you're just setting out now. So uh, I, for one, am on your bandwagon for sure. Um, so thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today's guest, Tori Fields, was speaking to us live from our Mill Valley studio. What an extraordinary person. She is. I just met her not, you know, six months ago, and I just feel like so connected to her personally and her mission. She's just a really energizing um, creator of light in a a world that's pretty dark, right? And so I find that to be a wonderful um, juxtaposition. It is, by the way, funny that the other, our previous guest, who was also very active in this space, Alex Drain, is another someone else who you would describe as remarkably upbeat yep. for somebody in this space or yeah. maybe you almost have to be I think so I mean I think that that sense of resilience and the personal connection to illness is probably really important Alex you know has also experienced being a caregiver and so I think it's it's really interesting to to see people thrive in this area and I hope they do because I think it's so important um, I do Well, you can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. And please remember to give us a review on iTunes if you like the show. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin and her writing at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and, as previously mentioned, recorded in Tectonics Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Take care.